You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney, uh, and I'm also the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute, and we're hosting uh, this evening. First thing I want to do, of course, is acknowledge that we are uh, on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, unceded land uh, that the University of Sydney occupies. Uh, this has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and environment for tens of thousands of years, uh, and it's only in the last 250 or so that that's all been undermined. So I think, especially tonight, it's important uh, to recognize the value of traditional knowledge uh, of this relationship and of the power of that traditional knowledge in living sustainably uh, with place. So we're going to have a bit of a conversation about uh, the book, The Cold Truth. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panel, and then I'm just going to start shooting some questions at folks. We'll go for about an hour with some Q&A as I stand closer to the mic. Uh, and then um, you'll have the opportunity to throw some questions uh, at David and the panelists uh, as well. So I'd like to introduce everyone, starting with Leslie Hughes. Leslie Hughes is an ecologist in the Department of Biological Sciences at Macquarie University. She's an expert on the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. She's a counselor with the Climate Council of Australia, the co-convener of the Terrestrial Biodiversity Adaptation Research Network, chair of the Tasmanian Climate Action Council and a member of Climate Scientists Australia and the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. Uh, on the end is Tara Moss, author, novelist, documentary maker and presenter, speaker and human rights advocate since 1999. She's written 11 best-selling books, another one coming, right? Published in 19 countries, 13 languages, including the acclaimed uh, Mac Vanderwall crime fiction series and the Pandora English paranormal series. Uh, she's a PhD candidate, candidate here at the University of Sydney and has been a UNICEF goodwill ambassador since uh, 2007. Uh, Bert Selheim here on the end is a poet, author, photographer, and academic. He's taught creative writing and poetics at UTS, lectured in philosophy at Macquarie, where he's completed a doctorate in phenomenology. His poetry, critical work, and photography have been published in periodicals and collections, such as Mean Gin, Heat, Liminal Pleasures, Overland, Best Australian Poems, Cutwater, Eyeline Contemporary Arts Journal, and the Journal for the British Society of Phenomenology. That's quite a feat going from Mean Gin to Phenomenology. And the star of the show uh, this evening, uh, David Ritter, is, of course, Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. He holds honorary affiliations at the University of Sydney uh, with us at the Environment Institute and at the University of Western Australia. Before taking up his present position at Greenpeace Australia Pacific, David worked for Greenpeace in London in a series of senior campaign positions. Prior to joining Greenpeace, he was one of Australia's leading indigenous rights lawyers. He's widely published as a commentator on current affairs and is the author of two books on indigenous land justice, Contesting Native Title and the Native Title Market. So um, I'm gonna start with some questions uh, for David. Uh, and the first one, of course, is why did we just start with an excerpt from War of the Worlds? 
Thanks, David. Well, in part, it was just a very good way of demonstrating the old adage that the technology never actually works. <laughs> um, it's good to give live examples. Um, so uh, there's a wonderful passage in The War of the Worlds, um, which uh, is a book I read younger than I understood most of what it was about, other than an invasion by Martians, where the narrator is describing the arrival of the first cylinder and, of course, naturally, the cylinder arrives first of all in central London because that's what you do if you're an invading uh, planet, you decide to land in central London. And the cylinder is there on Horsell Common and the narrator evokes the strangest thing of all, which is not the arrival of the Martians, but the calm at the arrival of the Martians, that folks go on with their ordinary affairs. And you know as a reader, of course, what is going to come because the book is entitled The War of the World, so you have a fair idea that things aren't going to end well. And you're invited to contemplate this moment of very strange calm. And the thing is that where we are now on global warming, on parts per million, on what is already locked in, is a little like the Martians have already landed and we are simply continuing on with our ordinary affairs as if nothing has occurred. So that's why we start with the dulcet tones of, uh, of Richard Burton. There's an interesting metaphor about invasion there as well, but we'll go on. I, one of the things that I really like about this book, and I, of course, encourage everyone to go out buy a copy, get it signed afterwards. But one of the things that I really like about this uh, book is the structure. The structure itself is unique. The way it's put together is unique. It's a very welcome way, I think, to, to teach about this particular event. I mean, I, when I was first reading this, again, I'm a, I'm a transplanted American, and so it really, to me, is a way of presenting this entire story to the outside, both to Australians, but also um, to the outside. So you have Adrian Burguba's uh, prologue on the perspective of traditional owners. You've got a foreword um, by Tara and Bernd. You have your own overview of the history and key issues, and then some expert chapters on issues addressing environment, health, economic issues, moral issues, including Leslie's chapter. And again, this is just a really interesting and unique construction. So why, why? Why did you do it that way? Why did you construct it this way? Why did you see that as an important way, a necessary way uh, to convey what's happening here? Well, I mean, you've heard the bios of the other panellists and pretty clearly I wanted to associate with some more distinguished people than I am. Um, look, the, the, it, was, it was cooked up over a, a cup of coffee with the brilliant director of publishing, uh, or the director of, the, of UWA Publishing, uh, Terry Ann White. And what we talked about was, was the need to take on the issue in a, in a multi-vocal way. That, that a sort of battery of campaigners saying this is terrible um, would not provide the same kind of uh, treatment of the material that, that if we provided a, a range of really different voices we, we could get to. And I guess with, a, with the background I have in native title and, and associated issues, um, and I think given just where... Um, general sensibilities are now, it was, it was absolutely essential to have a, a spokesperson from the Wongan and Jagalingu giving the opening 
um, because it is the, the issue, if you like, that in time and space, dimensions transcends other perspectives. And then um, I, I remember one afternoon um, sitting with Bernd and Tara having eaten a fairly a very delicious lunch, um, uh, talking about what it was like being a parent in the age of, of climate change. Um, and being a bit of a cheeky bugger, I thought, well, look, maybe I'll, I'll ask them how they'd feel about collaborating for the first time ever <laughs> uh, on a piece of written work um, and saying what they felt it was like to be parents in the age of climate change. Because we, 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 we have to acknowledge the personal in these, these deeply political and huge structural questions, I think, if we're to, we're to sort of get anywhere. And I, and I feel like that sort of beautiful haul away into the book then created the space in which I could sort of provide my own narrative treatment. And then, frankly, uh, Leslie is such, a, such an expert, is such a persuasive expert advocate, and by that I don't mean in any way blurring the appropriate role of the expert. I mean simply explaining so forthrightly the consequences of the data that we have. And... Uh, uh, as is uh, Hilary Bambrick uh, and uh, uh, the other uh, providers of the kind of expert barrage at the end. I mean, sort of, as we were talking earlier on, it almost felt like if the reader is not going to be persuaded by the sort of beauty and elegance of the opening hallway to the book, then goodness me, we can lay down a barrage by the professors at the end which will make <laughs> absolutely clear that we have to move away from coal. Does anybody else want to comment on the, on the structure of the book and participating in that? I would love to. Um, I think David has put together a book that draws in the reader and can draw in a wide range of different readers. And I think this is extremely important on an issue where, let's face it, the scientists have really been doing their job. We've not really been listening to them. You know, um, there's, a, there's a problem in politics and there's a problem of culture that needs to be overcome in order to see action on this issue. And the 40 pages of beautiful endnotes at the end and that expert testimony is there and testimony to the fact that we have the data, we have the science, and, and also that didn't just appear last week. This has been a problem for a while. So I like that David um, has taken this approach of trying to involve different voices to try to engage with people, maybe engage even with a broader group than have previously considered these issues. And as a non-expert myself, as someone in the arts, I think, yeah, we need a lot of different voices to tackle that cultural problem, that problem of narrative, uh, that problem uh, of disconnect between all this science and data and this like really pressing issue and the fact that we just don't like to talk about it or we don't do anything about it. And yeah, the Martians have landed and we're all just going about our world, our days, the same as we did before. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to, to agree with you there. I, I think one of the great successes of David's book is his capacity as a storyteller. And it's, it's really stories that can help to, I suppose, create the kind of public imagination in which Australia sees itself as a continent which grapples with the problem of climate change 
and accepts that there are moral issues with digging up coal. And, you know, as, as Tara says, we've had scientists telling us for decades that there's a problem here. You know, there's a really significant problem and the earth is changing. And, you know, over the last couple of decades that change becomes more and more palpable, but still our politicians dilly-dally. So the capacity of, of David to actually create a story around which we can kind of, we can see ourselves. I mean, I really think the arts have an incredibly important place to, uh, an, an incredibly important role within kind of realising what it is to live in an age of impending ecological catastrophe and responding appropriately to that. So one of the things you just mentioned is about David's storytelling, and this is actually something that grabbed me from the very beginning. Right, in, the, in your first chapter, you talk about the awakening of people in Queensland to what's happening. There's a notice in one place, something else is happening somewhere, people start to communicate, it starts to grow. And it's that, that story of how the, that bigger picture of the coal industry's plans um, for the Galilee Basin comes out. So there's this, this attentiveness to what happened and to the communication that brings to light what the plan is. Right? This, this invasion doesn't go unnoticed at that point. Um, but I guess um, the question is about the environmental movement and the structure of the environmental movement and what enables that kind of communication to start from one person getting a notice in their mailbox to the kind of movement uh, that we've had in the last couple of years? Look, I'd like to think that the book is animated by love. Um, uh, and that, that love comes in multiple forms. Um, and it very strongly running through the book is, is, the lo is love. So there's Adrian begins talking about love of country. Love permeates the wonderful piece written by Tara and Bert. My own contribution, I mean, there's a lot about the, the love for my family in there, um, my children, my brilliant uh, spouse, who even as we have this conversation is yet again doing invisible emotional labour so that my children don't kick up a stink while I get the privilege of sitting here uh, and talking. Um, the love uh, for country... Uh, in, a, I guess, a sort of broader sense than, um, well, the way someone like me from non-Indigenous stock, um, the way all of us feel a love of place, but also love for the movement, actually. And I hope that that love comes through in the description of, of that moment when this extraordinary woman, Paola Cassone, gets this note through the post, having been promised by the government of Queensland that Bimble Box uh, Pastoral Station will be a conservation estate in perpetuity. And she took the government at its word. And so when one day a notice comes through the post that says, in perpetuity doesn't mean we can't mine for coal on your country, you know, she initially responds with complete disbelief, you know, I'll just make a phone call and sort it out and learns the hard way that mining rules in the state of Queensland as it does in my home state of Western Australia and as the citizens of the Hunter Valley know it does in New South Wales. 
And Paolo Cassoni at that point says, oh no, you don't. And the sacrifice that is inherent in the story of what then follows in Paola's life as she builds friendships and builds alliances and reaches out. And then the work that is built uh, on top of that uh, by uh, individ- other individuals, other smaller groups, the Mackay Conservation Group, which plays this heroic role. Um, of course, uh, uh, the organisation I work for and love, the movement I love, Greenpeace, is in there. But there are numerous other organisations uh, in there as well uh, who, who play the, this part. And, and it's when the moment arrives, when you start seeing these entirely unorchestrated incidents. You know, someone texts me a picture of a car in North Sydney that has a Stoppadani sticker on it. Uh, I get, I, I see just on a news feed that someone has dropped a banner in Perth saying Stop Adani. A bloke who I do not know literally walks past my house one day as I'm standing in the front yard uh, wearing a, a t-shirt that looks like he's made it at home saying Stop Adani. And, and the sense that comes from all of this, that this is a rich ecosystem and that it is right to be generous and to appreciate all of the parts of that and and what it represents is just a determination on behalf of a big number of the Australian people to say enough is enough. We're simply not going to put up with this nonsense that mining rules anymore. And so there is just an ethic of of, 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 a theme, I should say, of, of love and of appreciation for that in all its richness, in all its complexity. That's a beautiful story. And then, of course, you tell the other story, which is the flip side, which is about the power of the coal industry and the stories that the industry has told and the opposition uh, that has grown, um, the sophistication uh, of that industry, uh, you know, from PR to the capture uh, of, uh, of business councils to outright political corruption. Um, and again, this is another part of the story. I don't know where the love is there other than the love uh, of money. But um, I guess the question you know, is, about, is about telling that story on the one hand and then thinking about how some of that is starting to crumble, it seems, and how some of the, the assertions of the movement early on that you know, the end of coal uh, needs to happen, that that you know, where the coal industry fought tooth and nail against that, right? And, you know, coal is good for humanity and all of that. That seems to be falling apart now. So I guess those, you know, can you tell a bit more about those uh, parts of the story? One of the strange things of the last decade or so has been the number of things that we would have written off as sheer mad conspiracy theories that have turned out to be entirely true. (laughs) It's really quite disorienting. Now, what we have in the coal industry is a bona fides, authentic cartoon villain. And this cartoon villain, at least at the big corporate end, has lied about the consequences of uh, their industry or has dissembled about it again and again and again and continues to pursue a course of action that, that uh, if, uh, if one looks at um, Professor Bambrick's chapter in the book, 
we can simply credit with being the cause of hundreds of thousands of deaths of human beings, where we do now have alternative energy sources. Now, now in saying all of that, no disrespect is meant to those who have earned a crust down the mines over the years. Right? As I talk about in the book, my dad, may rest in peace, his first job was as a coal miner. I don't think it's ever right to have a crack at someone who just has a job and wants to kind of get on in life. So it's not about that. But there does come a point where you have to acknowledge that it's time to transition out of things, it is time to transition out of coal, long overdue, just as it was once time to transition out of asbestos, mining, uh, just as it has been time to transition out of other things. At its worst, the organised conspiracy of the coal mining uh, uh, companies uh, involved, as you say, infiltrating or creating peak bodies, uh, briefing advertising agencies on um, uh, communications campaigns that, that sort of uh, beg a belief when you sort of look at them, you know, coal, this little magic rock, um, this kind of thing. That was coal, not cocaine, by the way, this little magic rock. Um, uh, it involves rotating people out of key positions in ministers' offices and so on, uh, all sorts of um, networks of, of patronage. And, and again, this is not the, the sort of... This is now a well-known story. So, so what the book builds on is work by people uh, like uh, Guy Pearce in particular, uh, but also others, who have laid down this story over the years. And this is now a conspiracy in plain sight and it has been a conspiracy of the coal mining companies and their friends on one side and the public good of the whole of humanity and the biosphere on the other. So I, I hesitate asking this a, a sort of a, a question that, that starts to counter that but also gets at your, your, mention, your sole mention of a political theorist in the book. Right, so you, uh, and I have to say this as a political theorist, David mentions Habermas and Habermas's idea of legitimation crisis. Uh, and you, you talk about the piss take, right? And the, 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 it's a great Australian term. I learned this political term as soon as I moved here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I guess the, the question has to do with the, the, the public fatigue with piss-taking, leading to this kind of legitimation crisis. Other people would put it about the loss of the social license to, to talk bullshit uh, about coal now. Um, and I guess, how have you seen this evolve over this course of time around Adani in particular? Habermas isn't the only political theorist. I think Marx gets a run too, but... Um, <laughs> uh, and Habermas, I'm sure, would have used the expression "piss take" had he had he come across it. Look, the, the, what's the "piss take" in German? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are some German speakers in the audience, so feel free to uh, to call it out. Um, look, the, the real penny drop moment for me around the extent to which this was just a piss take was was, uh, and it's described in the book, is um, was a moment when I was in. Uh, North Queensland uh, with a couple of colleagues and we'd been there to do some documentation and a few other things around the opposition to opening the Galilee Basin and we were literally having a beer in a bar 
and I was talking to the young fella who was on the other side of the bar and he was a sort of, you know, great advertisement for Queensland because he was smiley and friendly and, you know, sort of seven foot tall and we were making conversation. We were talking about the price of pineapples, actually. It was a sort of the most Queensland conversation you can <laughs> sort of have, really. Um, and I just sort of said with, with, you know, no particular conversational bridge, you know, what do you reckon about Adani? And he sort of paused and it was a quite sort of cinematic moment, at least in my memory, and, and sort of said, well, you know, I, 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 we do sort of need the jobs. And, you know, I was ready to get into the, well, yes, we need jobs, but the way is not through more coal mining. But then he, he paused and he, he sort of said, but this water licence business, you know, like, someone's having a laugh. And it was just so clear in the dry contempt of this 20-something bartender, just this sense in which, you know, those bastards think they can get away with anything. They think they can get away with giving away an unlimited amount of water for an unlimited amount of time in, on the driest continent on the planet without even a period of public comment because they specially changed the law to avoid having any to a company that then wants to mine coal to make things even hotter. <laughs> now, it was implicit in those few comments of that young bloke that if that is not a chronic piss take that ultimately does lead to and or signify a legitimation crisis then I don't know what is. Does anybody else want to, maybe Leslie, want to comment on, on that, this, this sort of legitimation crisis or the, I mean, working with the Climate Council and working against the state for the last few years? Uh, working against the state? Nobody's ever described me like that before. <laughs> I'll take it, that's quite good. Um, Hmm. I don't know how to how to answer that. I suppose we've still got a long way to go. So whereas David, let me tell the story of what happened to me this afternoon. David's talking about the knowledge of a bartender in outback Queensland. Just this afternoon, um, when I was leaving Macquarie Uni to come here, one of my colleagues said, "Oh, so where are you off to?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm on a panel." tonight um, to talk about Adani and she said well what's Adani and I felt pretty depressed by that I have to say um, so we you know it just struck me when David was talking that we have this contrast between you know fairly good knowledge I suppose in a bartender in Queensland and complete lack of knowledge in a professional highly intelligent person who has a job at a university. And it did strike me that um, whether you call it legitimation or, or what, we've still got a bit of a way to go. Let me, while you have the mic, let me ask you a different sort of question. And it gets back to the structure of the book, right? So you are one of our foremost ecologists, a climate change scientist, someone who's been involved in attempting to inform both the public uh, and the government um, for many years. And the question is, you know, it's not a scientific book necessarily. You are nested in 
with these political arguments and moral arguments and sort of everyday arguments and economic arguments um, with Quiggin. So what, what, what does it feel like to, as, as a scientist to have that sort of place alongside of those other discourses? Well, I actually think it's really great that the topic is mature enough to have only one chapter on science. And that might sound strange coming from a scientist. Um, we've understood the science of the greenhouse effect since 1824. When I say we, that was when the first paper was published on it. Um, CO2 as a greenhouse gas was understood in 1856. So there's an awful lot of science. And scientists have been banging on about this topic um, in the literature and in the press for a very long time. But it's very clear to me and to many other people that while science provides the rationale, it provides the explanation as to why we should be concerned, science doesn't provide the solutions. And I actually think it is a symbol of the maturation of the topic of climate change in an inner sense, the success notwithstanding my colleague who's never heard of Adani, um, but, but, uh, but the success of the campaign about climate change that there was only one chapter. And I actually think that's the right balance because it's the, the politics and the social science and the economics that now has to carry us forward. The science has provided the reason, but that's about as far as we can go. And I guess I can ask the same to Tara and Bert, right? So what, because neither one of you, you're, you're not climate scientists, you're not campaigners either, and yet you helped to open the volume. So why did you say yes to this, right? And, and, and sort of what, what do you see as, as the place of your voice in this? Well, first of all, David asked, and he's <laughs> David Ritter, and... Um, it's a, it was a real honour to be asked, and I think the opportunity was too good to, to pass up. You know, I think many people could have written a forward for this book. Um, it's not you know, better or more important because we wrote it. We, we represent the non-experts who live in this country right now in this moment, and that's, you know, you need to have all of those different voices in there, but you can't ignore this topic. And we need, as, as David was saying, a multivocal approach. You need to have the science, you need to have the campaigners, the seasoned campaigners, you need to have people looking at this from all different directions. And I particularly think there's a cultural shift that needs to, to happen and people who are cultural influencers or who are in the arts or who have a voice, who have the privilege of having a platform right now in this moment, would do well to use that um, on this issue. Um, as Leslie was saying, the science has been around for a long time and this is what frustrates me that we aren't listening to the experts and by we I mean the politicians, but also now we need to reach the public because the politicians aren't listening to the experts, aren't listening to the science. We actually need to reach individuals and that is in its own way a type of madness as far as I'm concerned. I don't think every individual needs to understand all of the science in order for this to change. I think we need to have people who are making decisions, who are legislating, listen to experts. It's a very rational way to go about it. But here we are, you know, here we are. It's 2018. 
this is still happening. It's not getting better. Um, it's getting worse. So, yeah, I wasn't going to pass up that opportunity to, to participate um, in this, and I think we all should try to do something in our own way to participate, whatever that is. But again, I think it's mad, absolutely mad, that it's it's down to individuals marching in the streets. I guess it's been like that for many issues over the years, but it's mad that we're still at this stage where we need to mobilize individuals and bypass these power structures because the people with power are just not, well, they're protecting the status quo. Power doesn't give up power easily, right? So we are talking about individuals, we're talking about democracy, we're talking about reaching people, and I think that's why the approach of this book with this storytelling component is incredibly valuable. Yeah, I, I think that we all need to be raising our voices as loudly and as belligerently as we can possibly do it, short of, short of actually being short of violence, basically. I, I, you know, the, the fact that we have these, um, these bureaucratic vampires trading away Australia's future, that's the future of my child. That's the future of, of David's children. You know, I think we have a right as Australians to be extremely angry about this. You know, people are taking to the streets and they're marching on this issue. The last time I saw certainly to my perception, such a, a, a kind of a, a groundswell in the Australian public perception on an issue was the Iraq war. And you know what? The public was right. It was one of the great foreign policy disasters of, of this country at the last, you know, the last maybe couple of decades, certainly. You know, it was a, a terrible idea. You know, Australians have a right to be angry. We have a right to turn to our government and say, look, uh, actually, no, climate change is not an idea that's been invented by a bunch of hippies to make Gina Reinhart feel bad. You know, it's, it's, it's real and there are ethical consequences for what we are doing. We are enriching ourselves from this, this little rock which we sell and it's, it's killing us and it's killing the world and, and that's the reality that we have to face. So I think, I think all Australians, you know, have the right and maybe even the responsibility and maybe that's a harder argument to, to make but certainly we have the right to stand up and say, look, this is not okay and it's not good enough. So following up on that for David, so we talked a bit about Adani and you've talked about you know, people wearing the Stop Adani shirts in the campaign and we've talked about defeating the big polluters looking at the title and the subtitle. What's the reclaiming the democracy part? What does it mean for you? Tell us a little bit about reclaiming democracy. Well... The, the problem with the atmosphere and the problem with the plastics in the ocean and the, the problem with the trees getting cut down and various other things we can think of ultimately comes down to a problem with the malformation of our political system. And it's one we experience every day and it's one that we now speak of as, as self-evident. And that problem is that um, big corporations have far too much power and everybody else has far too little. And that is actually the, the uh, crux of almost everything. And so what reclaiming democracy means is implementing the kind of changes 
Implementing, that's a terrible word, isn't it? No one ever gets excited about implementing. <laughs> you will never see the word implementing on a banner. <laughs> Features in no revolutionary songs. Um, <laughs> what we need are wholesale changes to the way uh, our political system operates. And these, these things are not, are not mysterious. And I sat in a, a room not far from here and had a learned law professor kind of sigh and say, look, I'm... I'm saying again what you do about political donations, but the thinking hasn't changed in a decade because we know the answer. The politicians just haven't done it. So, you know, let's list a few off. Yes, we need to sort out political donations. Uh, yes, we need a federal ICAC. Uh, yes, we need uh, properly funded institutions that are independent of government interference, like the ABC, like the CSIRO. We need universities returned to their proper purpose, including... Uh, the kind of independence that means they are not captives by the corporate or market agendas. Uh, we need the kind of, uh, ideally, we would have uh, uh, mandatory uh, B Corp uh, requirements being phased in so that all businesses are required to consider the rights of, uh, required to consider broader stakeholders, not just shareholders. And the great thing about that, by the way, is it means that, that, that everybody who works for uh, a large scale business could actually just go about their business secure in the knowledge that they were also serving the common good rather than um, uh, just profit margins. So that there are a bunch of things that we simply know what they are and we would know how to do them and the reason they are not happening is simply because of the very uh, maladjustment of power that they would be designed to cure. So that is why the fight, non-violent fight, uh, ladies and gents, is on. It's all to play for. Uh, but the system, uh, the political system, and the fate of the biosphere and the prospects for our uh, kids in 2100 and their kids... Uh, and just the prospects for, for our flourishing and happiness and contentment in day-to-day -day life are all ultimately bound up with the same thing. And so the Reclaim Democracy is about being organised to shift that balance of power in Australia. Somehow I knew you'd have a thorough answer to that question. Thanks. I guess I've got two more questions for all of you. And I'll start with, with David on this one because this is, uh, well, on the one hand, what a publisher would ask. But on the other hand, we've got people here who hopefully will pick up the book, go home and read it, read it to their children, uh, share it with neighbours uh, as, as you would in the inner west. And the question is just very straightforward. What do you want the book to do? I want the book to make a contribution to winning the battle of ideas that sits behind the contest over land. I want the book to spur action. It is a campaign tool, if you like. I want anybody who even sees it in a bookshop to say, how do I get involved? What do I do? If my life is going to have meaning, I have to be in this. And maybe the first thing they do is they pick up the phone and they undertake to ring a politician for the first time, which is what a bloke said to me in Clunes a couple of weeks back. A bloke in his 70s came up afterwards, said, 
I've never done this before. I'm one of those fellas who sits and yells at the TV. But I <laughs> promise you I'm going to get up on Monday morning and call my local MP. That's fantastic. And that bloke's going to tell his local MP it's time to get out of coal. Then you can ask for a meeting with your MP. And goodness me, the other thing is just get involved. I mean, I'm guessing that quite a lot of people here are already a member of the, the uh, social change or environment or climate group of their choosing, and there are, there are a range of absolutely fantastic organisations out there to get involved with that will keep you updated, invite you in. Now, look, hands up. I love Greenpeace. I work for Greenpeace. I've been with ten, Greenpeace for 10 years. Um, I used to give money to Greenpeace before I worked for Greenpeace. So, look, we'd absolutely love to have you inside Greenpeace. Um, we're a crew-powered organisation. But, you know, if we are not your flavour, then just get involved in any number of other great organisations out there who are committed to this popular uh, uh, alliance to ending the age of coal in Australia. Others, same question, because you've all contributed. What do you want the book to do? Um, I, I think for me it, the book is a symbol of the, the strength in diversity that we, we talk about a lot in terms of cultural diversity, gender diversity, sexual diversity, you know, diversity is the flavour of the month. But I think um, the book, because it brings together storytelling, science, economics, politics, uh, social science, etc., I think it, it is a sort of a tangible demonstration that you need all those voices um, to make a case. Um, and the different chapters will appeal to different people and that's fine. Um, but I think the, the strength is in the whole because the whole of it is more than the sum of, of the parts. And I would also add that if you don't want to give to Greenpeace, you could give to the Climate Council. <laughs> Look, I think um, the cold truth is a, it's a call to action and it's a well-articulated um, argument to bring you to the point of, of action. Um, and I just want to read a couple of quick things here. Why do we need action? And this, this is something the book lays out very well. Here's just a, a quick, rather depressing paragraph. Um, in urban areas, climate change is projected to increase risks for people, assets, economies, and ecosystems, including risks from heat stress, storms, and extreme precip uh, precipitation, inland and coastal flooding, landslides, air pollution, drought, water scarcity, sea level rise, and storm surges. And these risks are amplified for those lacking essential infrastructure, or like us, living in the bush or in exposed areas. And there's, there's solid, concrete calls to action here and things that individuals can do, like contacting their local MP, demanding no more uh, fossil fuels, um, organizing a meeting with your MP. If enough people do it, they do actually notice, they pay attention. Uh, withdraw your shares from fossil fuel companies and enablers. Sign a petition. You know, these are all things we can do in a democracy. If we do it en masse, it does have power. So we're not totally helpless here. This is a collective movement. It needs to be collective. It is a bit like David and, the, and Goliath, and uh, in this case, David, literally. <laughs> um, but we can, all, we can all be part of that. We can even up the balance by, being, um, by acting within a democracy um, in these ways. So there's a, a lovely list of things you can do. There's a true call to action in this book, and I think that's you know, my hope is that it, it actually does lead to, to real action on behalf of the readers.
Can I just add something to that? So, so most, you know, one of the um, popular types of survey of the last few years is <coughs> surveys of attitudes to climate change. And the more recent ones, you know, put climate change concern at around about three quarters of the population. Um, if three quarters of the population, if even half of three quarters of the population did ring their MP, that would be all one would need. And it's basically a free call. So it actually doesn't, in theory, take very much to make really drastic change. So, you know, even if half of all the people in Australia um, that were concerned about climate change picked up the phone, um, we would see very rapid change very quickly, um, which is what gives me hope that, that actually change is within our grasp. Yeah, I suppose... The thing that comes to mind for me is that I'd really like to see a shift in how, as Australians, we approach the, the ethical dimension of what it is to be mining coal. That I think we need to understand what that means and what it means to be profiting from this substance that is, you know, destroying our world. You know, if you accept the science of um, anthropogenic climate change, if you accept that carbon in the atmosphere, in the oceans, you know, leads to increased temperatures in this planet, there's just no place for coal. You know, we, as, as David puts it in, in the book, we, we don't have the carbon budget. We, 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 we've, we're full, you know. And in Australia, we need to recognise that, that coal has been, you know both no doubt a burden and also a wealth creator for this country, but that it has to stop. And the recognition of what that, this substance is doing to the world, the recognition of what these mines are doing to the environments in which they're built, I think needs to come and it needs to be, there needs to be some kind of a, a shift in how we understand what coal is doing. And I think once that understanding becomes you know, strong enough, then coal becomes impossible, you know, in the same way that kind of, you know, slavery becomes Im impossible or something, you know, when you, when you recognise the, the ethics of, of what you're doing. I think we need to, to shift the, the ground there and we need to think about it, you know, very, very, very strongly. Thanks. I guess I want to come back to something that David said before, um, leading to the, the last question from me anyway. Um, you said early on that the book is infused by love. And I like that because in my first read, the book is infused by death as well. Um, maybe that just says something about me. Um, <laughs> but there's, uh, there are the health impacts and deaths. There's a, uh, a really emotional discussion of an elderly woman who dies alone uh, in an apartment. There's the death of the reef. There's the death of, uh, of place and of Aboriginal culture. All of this goes through the book. And I, I don't mean to ask you necessarily about that. That's all as a segue because every time we have an event like this, people are always, it's always the down. It's always the death. It's always the, 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 um, the worst. And you cover all of that. But the flip side is what Leslie started to get at, which is where's the hope, right? You started saying, you know, what, what people can do, and so there's some sense that if people call or there's some sort of action, but it's a question for all of you. 
there is this infusion of death, and I guess one of the responses is there is also this infusion of love, and that's the um, that's the response. But wh- where do you see some sort of hope for the end of coal and for a just transition? Infused by death. You know how to sell a book, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Works for me. Look, I th- the book is infused. I mean, I, I, I have the... Um, uh, extraordinary privilege of working for an organisation and movement which is founded on love. Greenpeace is founded on an ideal of love. Um, and, you know, when we think about what motivates people, we are, we are motivated by love so much more than we are motivated by, by hatred or by greed or by any of those other things that, that afflicts us. I mean, it, it's a, I'm very fond of people, actually, which, and, and, you know, I hope that is there. Um, in the book. It's not a book that's sort of angry at the human race for being the human race. But it is also, um, it is also, I think, a book that is um, founded in a really sobering appraisal or sober appraisal and sobering appraisal of where we are. And, you know, in part, that is a reflection of, of actually, there was a, another panel that I was on with Leslie about a year ago where um, we talked a bit about this afterwards about just how serious things now are. Um, you know, if we, if we think for a moment of what it means to lose one half of the corals of the Great Barrier Reef in a two-year period on the, b- on the back of a baseline of a loss of 50% coral cover since 1985, if we think about what it means to lose 50,000 hectares of mangroves in the north or what is happening to the kelp forests in the south, if we think of the fires, if we think on the single death of a, the elderly woman that David speaks of in Sydney that, that um, uh, I talk about in the book, if we think of species that are lost, ecosystems that are in decline, terrible events that are occurring, wars that this is all contributed to, none of this can be tackled away. There's no moment of climate change redemption where we just stop all of that because it's, it's, we're already in it. The Martians have landed. But equally, if we look at what we still have, at what is around us, of what remains. Who among us would be so vulgar as to say that we do not still have paradise on earth? Who among us is not going to say that half of the Great Barrier Reef or a half of a half is not worth every effort? Who among us is going to say that we simply give ourselves up to four degrees of warming by 2100? And the recognition of that, founded on love, the desperation, the determination that is founded on that, has to, I think, give rise to that kind of unchallengeable, that hope, that sense that, yes, there will be casualties, there are casualties, we cannot bring back what we have already lost to the abyss, but that we will still prevail. And it's where that, that analogy of the wartime, though imperfect, is, I think, still right. 
that in wartime you do not pretend that when there is peace those who are killed, maimed, suffer in other unspeakable ways, the cities that are destroyed can somehow be brought back because they can't. But you still maintain that indomitable conviction that you will succeed. And it's that, that logic of, of humanity combined with the sheer scale of the opposition that we are seeing to a coal industry that even five or six years ago was thinking it could not possibly be toppled, plus the leaps in renewable technology that give me every confidence that so long as we are desperate about this, so long as we don't slacken off, so long as we regard this as the main game, the only game that we will get there and that we will secure so much that is so magnificent and so worthy of our efforts. Others on what gives you hope before we open it up for the audience? Well, that was a pretty hard act to follow, so I'll... <laughs> I'll be very brief. I'm, I take a very pragmatic approach to hope because I, I just don't think we have any choice other than to have hope um, for the very reason that if we don't, we give up and if we give up, we're stuffed. So, you know, to me, the, there is no alternative but to have hope. Um, you know, as a climate change scientist, um, and David and I have talk, talked about this, um, we, we both love the, um, the quote from a, a guy called Antonio Gramsci who was a early 20th century Marxist politician who talked... He wasn't talking about climate change, but he talked about the tension between uh, the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. And to me, it absolutely sums up the state of mind of anybody that works in the climate change area, whether they're a scientist or not. You have to actually corral off the pessimism of the intellect part of your brain most of the time to focus on the optimism of the will most of the time. Otherwise, you can't continue to do your job that you know is necessary. So I just, you know, we have no choice but to have hope because the alternative is not acceptable. I think David and Leslie said it beautifully, but um, the only thing I'll add to that is is to say that when we look at our daughter, Safira, when we look into her face, what are we going to say? We, we have no energy to try. You know, we owe her better than that. We, know, we owe the next generation and the generation beyond that much more than to simply say, it's all too hard. It was all just a bit too dark. I just didn't want to talk about it. You know, it's not good enough. So, yeah, we have no choice but to maintain optimism and energy and hope on this issue and other issues that have to do with democracy and equality and our survival on this planet. It's real, right? We have no choice in the matter whatsoever except to, to forge on and continue. Yeah, I think you've, you've, the three of you have said it all, but uh, the only thing I would say in terms of hope is to amplify David's point about 
the enormous shift that's already happened in the Australian community to do with how we perceive the coal industry and the fact that we're sitting here at the front of this room in front of you um, fine people I think illustrates that you know there is already a massive groundswell you know against coal and that is only going to grow and you know I am convinced absolutely convinced that the coal industry will be you know will be dead and gone within decades because if it's not we're all stuffed basically you know so I'm absolutely certain that what we already perceive in that in that shift in, in how the, the public kind of thinks about coal is is a beginning 